Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the Virtual CISO Moment. Terrence Bennett joins us today. He is the Chief Executive Officer for Dream Factory Software. Terrence, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Greg. Happy to be here. We'd love to hear about your um, cyber path, how you got started and why you got started in cyber, and also want to hear how you transitioned from the Navy, I believe, into cyber and all of that. So why don't we start from the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. I will. Um, I guess that the story actually begins back in middle school, high school, uh, joining uh, then kind of an early robotics club that turned into sort of a computer club and I built my first PC. Probably as like a sophomore in high school, you know, um, dial up internet trolling uh, cybersecurity threads looking for, you know, mischief and things to get myself in trouble. Um, <laughs> you know, definitely, you know, early kind of a bit of a, uh, a nerd around tech and and just building and experimenting and hacking. And then I went to the Naval Academy where there's not much room for, for that. Um, I got away with a little bit, but, um, you know, I actually decided to step away from, I didn't study um, computer science. Cybersecurity wasn't a major at the time. Um, and so I ended up studying economics and political mm -hmm. science and uh, international relations and intelligence studies. Um you know, I've always also been really interested in like geopolitics and and kind of like kind of strategy, right? Intelligence type work. Um, kind of flash forward, then a few more years, um, commissioned from the Naval Academy, ended up first on a ship on the USS Paul Hamilton as a gunnery officer, then auxiliaries officer. Um, I think that's relevant because like systems are systems, whether they're digital, whether they're physical, mechanical. Yeah. Uh, but then. Fate would have it. I ended up at the Office of Naval Intelligence running an IT group. Um, I'll buy, you know, classified, classified work, but still nonetheless, kind of like uh, got back into um, computer science heavy work. And that's really where I started doing what you consider traditional cybersecurity work today. Um, and ran that team for about two years, ended up then at NCIS doing a, a, a kind of a, a smorgasbord of different types of activities from counterintelligence, counterterrorism, more traditional intel work, uh, law enforcement um, kind of work, but also also cyber, right? And, and it was from that experience that I said, okay, I, I'm going to get out of the Navy, but I definitely want to work in tech. And at the time, I didn't, I wasn't hyper-focused on cybersecurity. I, I like cybersecurity, but my aperture's always been kind of wider. And, and I think that's actually pretty common across the... Uh, the industry, right? Like typically cybersecurity experts um, are almost generalist in a sense that they they can go deep on a lot of different topics and then understand the larger sort of ecosystem and uh, very, very well. Um, so ended up in cloud at, uh, at, at um, Google Cloud on the, mm -hmm. on the storage and databases team, um, working with a group of product managers. And then from there ended up on Google's red team, which is... Uh, like a traditional adversarial simulation pen testing kind of team, right? Um, and I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of details here, so I'm going to actually double back on that. My first job at Google was as an executive assistant. They mm -hmm. use the term administrative business partner. But um, you know, tra transitioning out of the military is difficult. You're dealing with a bunch of different challenges here. The biggest one is cultural. Something like, you know, 60, 80% of Americans don't actually know anyone in the active duty military. How, um, how many, what was it for 60 to 80%? 80 percent. I've heard the number wow. 80 percent. That actually feels like just too high. Yeah, but, um, yeah. There's this massive cultural divide. 
um, between those who've served and those who haven't in this country. And so what you get with at a practical level is, is the fact that folks just don't know what it means, don't know what, what any of it is, right? Um, but as a junior officer in the Navy, one of the, the jobs I got tapped for was as an executive assistant to the commanding officer overseeing all of Navy's um, classified networks. Mm-hmm. This is at, at ONI. And uh, so I did that job for a year. And um, it's intended to be kind of a way to um, introduce junior officers, promising junior officers to, you know, flag level work to kind of senior leadership, uh, what they call the flagpole, right? Um, for the point of kind of, hey, maybe someday you'll be up here, right? Why don't you see how it works? How does the sausage get made, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, they saw a year of EA experience and said, oh, that qualifies you for this administrative business partner role. And when I got the call, I said, sure, you know what? <laughs> let's do it, right? Let's let's see what this is all about. And I had a bunch of really interesting interviews. And what they really pitched to me was not an EA role. It was a mini chief of staff role. Mm-hmm. And what the deal was the manager I interviewed with, um, Dominic Preuss, uh, who amazing, amazing leader. Um, he, that's what he pitched to me as well. And, he, and he, you know, he looked at my resume and he said, Terrence, like you're you're pretty qualified for this, right? Like we're going to put you to work. We're going to make sure that you you grow as much out of this role as as you're you know putting into the team. And so in two years, we tripled the size of his team. That team is now actually I think three or four different teams. That's how much wow that's grown since 2017. Um, and it really gave me the footing to then um, move on through Google. First, you know, to pivot from. ABP ladder to the program manager ladder to switch to switch team not just teams but whole kind of uh, organizations across Google. Um, I made a lot of allies while I was there. You know, folks who um, started chatting with me and were like, "Hey, you're like your former intelligence officer. Like, like let's have a conversation about like wh- what are you doing as an ABP and, and and what do you want to do? Like, what are your interests? Right? Um, mm-hmm. The ABP role is is a is a wonderful one and the, and. Uh, it requires incredibly capable, talented people. Um, but for me, I, I decided, you know, I was looking for something else. Um, actually, I'm dyslexic. And so the idea of trying to hold dates and dates and names in, in mental memory, working memory, <laughs> yeah. is not like a strong suit of mine. So, um, you know, I've got some strong coping mechanisms, mechanisms and I was able to get through it. But um, so, um so I was able to move then from ABP work to, to uh, cybersecurity work. That team, we also grew. I think I was the second hire in Sunnyvale. Most of the team at that point was in, in the Zurich office. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, I, I want to say they're, they're well over 20 um, across three offices because they've got a New York office now. And so what I was able to do with another program manager was really build out a robust and mature um, process, really was like, hey, hey, like we could run exercises all day, but what are we really getting out of this? And are we doing it in a way that's, that's value added to the organization? And so kind of put my Intel hat back on and said, well, hey, let's let's take a step back and ask, like, who, who are the adversaries who might be able to actually realistically pull off attack like this? And what would they actually want to do? And so we talked, we started all the way at the other end of the spectrum from the attack and, and asked, who's this adversary? What are their TTPs? How do they go about actually planning attacks, executing attacks? And we would build exercises with that mindset to the mm-hmm. point where we could actually start to build malware to mimic those actors. So not only are you getting a pen testing 
kind of effect out of these exercises. You actually become a sparring partner with the blue team, the the, the yeah. security response team, right? The, um, and and the you know you're really good, or you know when uh, I'll say you know even successful when the blue team thinks they've actually found an attacker, right? And you let them. And then there was a whole process of across management to coordinate and make sure things didn't actually get escalated. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Sundar, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I think we built something really special there. I think we built a program that, um, I mean, I, I've been gone for now over two years. It's definitely stood the test of that time. I think it'll continue to stand the test of time. Um, we also, I also worked on a, a program called the Orange Team, which was a one-week volunteer program uh, where you could essentially step out of your team and onto the security team and, and do pen testing with us there as well. So that's, that's kind of my, um, that's how I got to this moment, except I left out that I'm now running a, a company called dream factory software, which is um, API management with, a, with kind of a security twist. And so it's the ability to generate APIs on the fly with all the security in mind that you would need to, to be able to, to you know, put those APIs into production and so uh, I'm having a lot of fun. Um, great team, great product. So, well, um, I, I'd like to dig into in just a moment a little bit more about API security and 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 when you talk about baking in security into the APIs, because I do think that that is something that does affect small, well, all businesses. But I, I like to focus on small and mid-sized businesses as well. Um, but but I will ask also uh, in in 30 seconds, what you think is like a significant threat to small and mid-sized businesses. So I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to think about that. Yeah. Absolutely. Are you a virtual CISO or interested in the space? Then join us at the virtual CISO exchange LinkedIn group. Now, small and mid-sized businesses often need executive level information security experience, but can't afford a full-time CISO. The virtual CISO is one way to address that gap. And this group is for current and interested VCSOs to discuss issues and challenges both generally in information security and those specific to the VCSO space. Go ahead and search for it on LinkedIn. All right. So what do you think? What's a, what's a huge threat to small and mid-sized businesses in cyber? Um, I actually think the threat to mid and small, um, si small businesses from a cyber perspective is the same threat that um, is, it is for enterprise businesses, which is phishing. Mm -hmm. um, again and again, phishing ha has been and will continue to be the the primary kind of leak uh, loose weak link in the uh, in the larger organization. And uh, and I'm a huge fan of of the use of security keys for this for this reason. Um, at Google, this is something that you know when I joined, they were using them. And um, here's an example of, of the Titan security key. Here's a Yubico. And and oh. these are critical to to preventing phishing attacks. So I'll kind of leave it at that. We can we can dive more in. I think most people understand. I I, I I have to I have to show too that I've got my YubiKey right here too. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> it, it really I don't get to show that off too often. So <laughs> I think I got the serial number there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to be honest. It's like that one I don't use anymore. It's just hanging uh, out on the keychain. Yeah. No, so. I have good numbers anyway. So. No, I think, I think phishing is valid. Um, um, absolutely valid that, that, you know, so I've had people ask me, well, why is phishing still, still an issue? And it's like, well, you know why? Because it works. It, 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 it's, it's people are falling more for it. You've always got that human element there. And, and yeah, anything that we can do to interject another hump, another step in that process 
to not give up your credentials, such as like, you know, anything multi-factor um, is definitely going to help. I, I also said that I wanted to really dive in a little bit more into API security. So what, when you said that um, you're, you're working on creating, if I'm correctly, APIs that have security baked in at Dream Factory, what, what, is, what does that mean like to a CEO? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the API is a really general term that can mean a lot of different things. Um, most people, when they think about APIs, are thinking about public-facing APIs. Mm -hmm. That, um, and, but what I'm actually talking about is internal APIs. So, public-facing APIs, incredibly important part of your business, right? Um, you need a team of API developers to build, maintain, update those, right, and, and secure those as well. Um, Dream Factory is built for the ability to generate internal APIs. And, and so what that means is the ability to actually just point this uh, Dream Factory at, at a database, at a file system, um, and just with a snap of a finger, essentially, create an API that just maps that database schema directly to an API schema. And then you can connect to whatever tables, whatever you need within that. And it's got role-based access built in. It's got API key management built in. It's got rate limiting built in all the authentication you know, an enterprise would need. And the reason why that's valuable is because serving data out to the public via API is its own bag of worms. And, and there's a bunch of, there's a ton of products that are really, really great at that. Um, but far too often the vulnerability or the, or the breach is, it has to do with uh, a front end application getting compromised. A front end application has hard written access into a database and that entire database then gets exfilled because of it, right? Or maybe it's a little more nuanced than that, right? But but some sort of access and no ability to, to monitor that and turn it off. And APIs are the way you do that, right? Is instead of you know writing an ODBC driver directly into a database, you you connect that application via an API. You set rate limits. You set keys with with absolute minimum necessary access. And if you see weird behavior, you just rotate the keys, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so. That's kind of that's a lot we're talking about. Also, what we're seeing across organizations is the move away from, and obviously a lot of organizations have already done this, as organizations move away from monolith kind of legacy structures and, and, and applications, uh, unbundling a, a large um, uh, architecture into microservices is a massive um, task. And if you can do that by just generating APIs as, as you go against all those databases, all, all those tables as needed, you can speed up that kind of migration incredibly fast. Also, what we're seeing is organizations moving to like a hybrid cloud where maybe they've got, maybe there are multiple clouds, maybe they're on um, like an on-prem um, legacy system combined with cloud. You need to connect all that. And if you don't have a team of API developers, which are obviously expensive and increasingly hard to, hard to actually hire, then that's going to be a huge burden. And so API generation is kind of filling this void, filling this space in the market. Well, and and you, yeah, you're, that's exactly where I was going to go with the next question because I, I've got my CEO hat on and I'm thinking, okay, I get what you're saying. It's like the old ways of transferring data or accessing databases have inherent insecurity um, just because of the way that they're built. And you want to secure them with APIs. APIs are, are, are difficult to do if you don't have the dev team there. You're you're providing basically internal APIs as a service, I guess would be sort of a way to say it. Um, but what does that mean from a resource standpoint? I mean, how, what sort of expertise would an organization need to have in order to use a product such as yours? 
It's a good question. Uh, typically, we've got uh, we're working with like a, a single or, or small team of of essentially like architects, right? So these are these are relatively senior folks within an organization, but um, that's actually okay because they have the ability to to build. And, and we see organizations build hundreds of APIs. In the case of like Netgear, <laughs> seven eight hundred APIs on Dream Factory. Um, so you have a a very knowledgeable, centrally located you know, senior manager, like a, like a senior architect or something who, who's kind of running dream factory and they have the ability just to connect absolutely everything they need to and use dream factory as this, this internal kind of single, single layer that, that connects um, the entire organization. And then you, maybe you run that behind some firewall, depending on your organization structure. And then you run dream factory another place, another area behind another firewall. And so you can then use, you can use APIs, to move data through firewalls instead of having to punch holes in, in open new ports. Um, it, it sort of opens up an entirely different way to think about internal organizational uh, architecture and, and how you go about actually connecting everything. Yeah. And that's where now I'm taking off my uh, CEO hat and going back now to my, to my networking and cybersecurity hat. I'm like, um, that I find that very attractive because uh, as a, as a former network engineer, one of the things that I, really despised was opening up holes and firewalls and, and, and not knowing exactly what was going through there. I mean, you have to do something like that, but, but, but it sounds like I, I'm putting back on the CEO hat. It sounds like that somebody doesn't have to be an API programmer in order to, to leverage this. Is that a fair statement? hundred percent. You know, we, the tools effectively, it's low code you can build APIs without any code whatsoever, but we find most people want to want to add some custom scripting, some some custom um, capability there. But yeah, I mean, you could spin up APIs against uh, more or less any database without a single line of code, um, generate keys and share them to front end developers. You know, whoever needs them. Um, it, I I would say though, our our core customer is a highly technical, typically just very overworked, <laughs> resource constrained. You yeah. know, director of IT. Uh, uh, architect. It, it, the tool is not intended to be for kind of, you know, no code types, right? It's intended to be for highly technical people who just need to be able to generate APIs quickly across an organization um, to be able to, to move data and do it securely. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I get that to the point where it's like I, my, my test, my litmus test for something like this is like, could I do it? And, and based on what you're saying, it sounds like that I could because I mean yeah. I'm not I'm not a really head down coder and and any of that, but I mean I've done coding. I'm technical. I'm network savvy. I'm database savvy to a small extent. I know enough just to be be dangerous. Um, but but that's a huge huge benefit because I see from the virtual CISO side several instances with our clients where they struggle with exactly that. And and uh, I mean from a higher level about. Well, they have the technical expertise. They just don't have the bandwidth to do it. And yeah. so it sounds like that this is something that could be very, very efficient. You're, you said your, your, um, your, your, your customers, your core customers usually have some uh, good technical expertise. But what about like verticals and, and other demographics of, of folks that are using your software? What, what does that look like? So we see a lot of public sector. Um, we signed NIH recently and they're, um, they're in production right now. Um, a lot of actually... And I love this city, local, state um, customers, mm -hmm. everything from, you know, a county in Maine or a county in Alaska, excuse me. I think we have a customer in Maine as well. Um, some customers right here in California, in Bakersfield, Alameda. 
um, a lot of banks, large banks are looking for ways to kind of untangle the monolith, right? And just be able to generate generate um, microservices quickly. Um, in some cases, they kind of use Dream Factor as a band-aid between, while they're, while they're, let's say, if, you know, one bank had 24 different acquisitions, all different HR systems. They had to pull <laughs> all that data together really, really quickly and be able to update it quickly. Dream Factor is this per, sort of perfect band-aid for five years <laughs> to do all that really, really quickly and relatively cheaply, right? Yeah, I've been on the side, not not that many acquisitions, but certainly uh, had to work through bank acquisitions. And it, 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 there's a lot of difficulty all there. And anything that you can do to make IT and InfoSec's life easier is is deeply appreciated. <laughs> so. Yeah. so a lot of highly regulated industries because it is a self-hosted tool. So you put it in your in your in your um, in your environment, right? Wherever you want. We can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't ping it. Um, it runs, just hums away, and uh, obviously, you know, we're, we're, we provide support and everything else, maintenance as needed. It's also uh, core open source. So um, so the, the core product is open source, um, and then there's some added-on sort of features and connectors that are, that are commercial. Well, I know that uh, from experience that uh, anything in cyber, and particularly running a cyber company, I'm sure is quite stressful. It can be. Um, and yet, being at that level you most likely have the the tendency to want to like be working more than you probably should. It's probably hard to get away. I can almost imagine, but you do need to get away on occasion in order to decompress. I think uh, we do see a lot of issue with uh, mental health struggles in cyber. I'm wondering uh, what is one thing that you do to get away from that stress? Um, no, it's, it's a great point. And you're, you're absolutely right. I think the industry is um, sometimes it feels like it's at a breaking point. Um, it's really important to take care of yourself. For me, especially former military, working out and specifically running is is a uh, is a very cathartic, um, uh, you know, activity for me. Especially just kind of getting out. I actually did a tough mutter for the first time oh. a few weeks ago, which is really cool. Kind of just, you know, it's a way to kind of like turn off the the default network in your brain and just be in the moment. You know, grit and 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 uh, and get through. You know, the obstacles. Get through the run. And so, um, so yeah, so that kind of stuff, you know, just getting outside with the family, I've got two little kids, so we, we try and get outside and we went up to the, see the Redwoods, um, about an hour and a half away last weekend. So yeah, getting outside, exercising, running a little bit of lifting. So that's how was, how was the experience doing your first Tough Mudder? It was cool. It was the one here in Sonoma. I, I live kind of like an hour, about an hour from Sonoma and it's, um, there's actually a huge outbreak of MRSA, which is unfortunate. I, I didn't get any infection, but uh, overall, the, the, exercise, the, the, the event was fantastic. Very well run. Um, we, you know, we, we, it's just, uh, there's like 37 obstacles, everything from getting electrocuted to swimming through ice water. Um, you know, I, I, um, I probably went into it a little too cocky, thinking like I'm former military. I've kind of been through a lot. You know, I'll be fine. And there's definitely some obstacles where, you know, you get shocked with 12 volts. You're not really expecting it. And it gets it gets your. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, having a uh, used to have a mini farm with an electric fence. I there were times when I got zapped pretty good. Yeah, so, uh, no, but it was good. Definitely I, 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 I have been and still consider myself uh, somewhat of a runner. I, I, it, I tend to go a lot slower than I used to. I've, I've done marathons. I do a half marathon every year and I've, I've wanted, I've, I've seriously considered doing a tough mutter 
ever since a buddy of mine, he's a, he's CISO right now for, uh, for Metro national, at least I think he's still in that position. Um, but, uh, uh, he was just like, he just loved it when he did it the first time. And, and this is probably like been about eight or nine years. And I'm like, yeah, I'll get to it sometime, but I don't know at this point in time, I like comfort. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I think the tough motor might actually stress me out even more than I think about it. So, well, um, what are your future plans, uh, uh, either for yourself or for Dream Factory or both? Um, you know, for Dream Factory, we're, we're uh, running as fast as we can, hard as we can, um, trying to kind of explain to the world what API generation is and why it's here. Um, we got G2 to create a new category for us, actually. And, uh, oh. and so, yeah, my plans are intertwined <laughs> very, very closely when I think about the future with Dream Factory. And um, so that's, that's, where I, that's where I am. Um, anyone can, you know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or, or just find me on, on the Dream Factory site. If you reach out, you'll, you can get a hold of me. So, um, yeah, really exciting times and doing a lot of work and, in and public sector. At... And, and the website is dreamfactory.com, correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I was just, uh, um, I had it, I had it in my notes and then the, the window went away for a moment and I'm like, what happened there? <laughs> so, well, well, very good. Very fascinating discussion. Um, I know, um, as I said in the beginning, API security is really becoming one of those hot topics nowadays, um, for businesses of all sizes and, and was really looking forward to learning stuff on this call and you didn't disappoint. So I appreciate that. Absolutely, Greg. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, everybody, stay secure.